Hello. Welcome to a multi-part series called Dialogues on Prophecy and the End of Time. I'm John Major Jenkins. Today, Jonathan Zapp, a philosopher and teacher and man of many thoughts, will be sharing his insights. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, just to get us started, I'd like to ask you a two-part question. How did you get started in this work, and how does human psychology affect people's understanding of prophecy? Well, I got started on a formal basis in the late 1970s. When I was 19 years old, I'd been befriended by the <coughs> chairman of the philosophy department, who allowed me to study what I'd always been interested in, which was the strange and the anomalous and the hard to explain. And after a couple of projects, I took on a, a third project that's defined a large part of my life uh, since then. And <coughs> what I wanted to find out was why a couple of particular science fiction movies and stories had a tremendously powerful effect on me. It wasn't really clear why, but they seemed to stir something deep inside. And the path that I was following, and I think it's the path that you followed and a lot of um, thinkers have followed, is something I've since called the path of the numinous. Numinous was a word that Jung used a lot. Newman means spirit, and so something that's numinous is something that's imbued with the spirit or that lights up with an uncanny significance. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist. Exactly. Yeah. And what I found is that by following those anomalous objects and sort of following them down the rabbit hole, but hopefully without losing all of our powers of discernment, uh, that you can uh, arrive at some interesting vistas of um, awareness. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> um, so my, the way I, I got involved with, with Jung, it was actually, I have to give credit to my mother, who was a psychologist, and uh, telling her about this project that I was going to do with a science fiction story. She said, well, you should really read about Jung. At mm. that time, I pronounced it Jung and the collective <laughs> unconscious. And I remember going up to the second floor of the school library, and there were all these impressive black volumes, the Princeton Bowling Game edition of uh, Jung's collected works. Mm -hmm. But I might have been looking at them with a certain skepticism because I'm thinking, what is this dead Swiss guy who reached manhood in the 19th century going to tell me about the weird obsessions of this adolescent Jewish kid from the Bronx? But <clears throat> I pulled out the index volume and I see, wow, he's written a book called UFOs, A Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky. Well, that's a direct hit because um, all of these stories had some kind of UFO connection. So naturally I pulled out that volume and then um, to my amazement, I discovered that one of the movies that had gotten all this started um, was a British science fiction film, black and white, made in 1960 called Village of the Damned. It was later mm. um, done as a remake with John Carpenter in 1995. And that was the one where it was released just a few weeks before Christopher Reeve had his tragic accident. Mm. He was a star in that film, and there's kind of a strange connection there. And <clears throat> to my astonishment, I saw that Jung had done a huge study of a British science fiction novel called The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham, 
which was the novel that the movie was based on. Hmm. So it was almost as if he was standing over my shoulder and saying, like, yes, I was interested in that one too, and here's what I thought. So it was a series of uh, synchronistic messages that really brought it home to you that this was an area where you were going to find some important information. And, th that's, and that's a sign when you're, when you're on the right track or on some kind of a track is that it will tend to create synchronicities or serendipitous discoveries and, and that type of thing. But I'll get to the second part of your question um, about the psychology of prophecy and how people's psychology um, is, uh, affects their sense of, of, of prophecy because I think we should talk about the unreliability of this subject in some ways. I think that philosophers, psychologists, neurologists are all pretty much in agreement that <clears throat> all perception is a lot less reliable than we might want it to be. And if we consider even what we consider the most objective of perceptions, um, the fact that I'm looking at you right now and I feel I'm um, seeing a real person and, 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 and so on. But what's really happening is I'm seeing ambient light bouncing off the topography of skin, hair, and clothing. Uh, that's being reflected and it's entering uh, my eye through a simple convex lens, so it's appearing upside down on the back of my retina. Mm -hmm. And then neurological processing has got to turn that right side up and do various other things with it. Mm. And it takes a substantial fraction of a second for all that to happen. So basically what I'm actually seeing is a neurological reconstruction of a past event. Mm. Mm. And although this is happening internally, and all perception is internal, I believe that I am um, objectively witnessing something outside myself. Mm -hmm. And of course we know that there were subject to various optical illusions and and that uh, imperfections in our eyesight and in our visual processing can distort what we think we see. Now that's just when it comes to the, the five senses. Now when we start talking about prophecy and about things that have a highly emotional charge, now we become subject to what psychologists call projection. Hmm. And um, with projection, perception becomes a whole lot more unreliable and this confusion of inside and outside uh, becomes heightened. So for example, a man is walking down the street and he sees a beautiful woman and he immediately feels this surge of emotion and believes, she's my soulmate, I've known her from other lifetimes, I can feel it. Now, although I wouldn't rule out the, the pot that, that could be the case in some rare case, but um, more likely it's a projection, a projection of, of what Jung called the anima, which in a man would be the feminine part of his being, which he might be very likely to project onto, say, a beautiful woman. And the, the hook for the projection might be nothing more than visual parameters of a certain body type and so forth. And he will be filled with a conviction that that eternal recurrence. I've known her before. I was meant to be with her. And in a sense it's true, but we sort of have to interpret it several le levels of metaphor um, to really get at the truth, which is that he may be seeing part of his own being 
and therefore of course he will feel that this has always been my companion I've known this from other lifetimes and so forth um, because of this projection now when we start talking about prophecy and particularly prophecies about the end of time um, now we, we have something that also has a highly emotional charge and where there tends to be I believe an intense confusion uh, of inner and outer mm -hmm. and the emotionally charged uh, inside of that or constellation complex that will tend to get confused with uh, what's attributed to a future outside of that the end of the world is the intense anxiety that we feel about our personal deaths mm. now mm. there's a reason why um, personal death individual death and eschaton or the end of time would tend to get uh, confused because there's a certain parallelism going on between them uh, like a fractal where the small part recapitulates the whole the life cycle of the individual in some ways recapitulates the life cycle of the species because mm. every species mm. has, a, has a kind of start and an end they, they, they believe that the average lifespan of a species is a hundred thousand years mm -hmm. and we also see like in the famous biological maxim ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny uh, we see in the development of a fetus that'll kind of go through the life cycle of uh, the development of life on the planet will start as a kind of one-celled being and then it turns into something that's more of an amphibian and it'll go through these different forms mm -hmm. so uh, the individual perception of death which is unpleasant and irritating to, to many people um, we would like to attribute that uh, to something outside because anything that we don't own or integrate about ourselves we will tend to project onto the outside world if there are inferior qualities in me that I don't like but don't want to face then I'll tend toward shadow projection there'll be somebody else at my workplace or social environment who's probably close to me in age and pro probably the same gender who will intensely irritate me and this is called shadow projection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, much like um, the Nazis uh, may have experienced toward the Jews where Hitler had an ambition to have a thousand-year Reich and he felt that the Jews were trying to dominate the world and, and, and so forth and so when we um, look out at the world and particularly when we look out at it with the idea that we're having prophecies about the future we are always looking through a glass darkly mm. and what we see is often a distorted reflection of ourselves and of our own psychic structure mm -hmm. and so with the a prophecy thing now this is not true of every prophecy but one thing that that many prophets will have in common is that they will tend to talk about some extremely dramatic event often the end of time or the end of world and they will almost always conveniently find that that's going to happen within their expected lifespan mm -hmm. because individual death um, which is an irritating and unsettling and anxious um, possibility for some people not for me fortunately and not for some others but uh, for many people it is um, especially because the ego is wrapped up in the social matrix so the thought that like 
I'll be gone and all this will be going on without me? Well, that doesn't seem very fair. You know, mm -hmm. people can talk about me and I won't be there to defend myself. But if everybody's going to sort of check out together and it's all going to happen to everybody at once, well, that's a lot more satisfying to the ego. And then if you add on to that some sort of version of the rapture, um, which is nowhere to be found in the Bible, but is immensely satisfying uh, to the ego because you have some kind of paradise that you're going to be uh, going toward. And especially like with the idea of the rapture where the kind of people you don't like who aren't part of your church are going to get left behind and have to deal with the Antichrist. Well, this is really very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And projections tend to be satisfying. And so um, there tends to be this confusion and fusion of the eschaton of the species and the individual event horizon of, of death. And uh, years after I had this theory, uh, there was an interesting anecdotal support of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a woman who is a psychic um, in the early 1960s and who is very famous in her prophecies, or she had some sort of column that was syndicated in many newspapers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it wasn't Jean Dixon, however, who was the most famous mm -hmm. newspaper syndicated psychic of that era. And I can't recall her, her name, but uh, she had a vision that uh, there was going to be the earthquake that was going to destroy California, basically. Mm -hmm. And after she her vision was printed in the, in the newspaper column, other psychics in copycat fashion hmm. started to pick hmm. up on this date and also say that there would the great earthquake would come on on, on this date. Mm -hmm. She however was apparently very sincere in her belief in this particular prophecy because uh, at great expense she moved her whole family from the Bay Area to Nevada. Well when the day arrived uh, there was no earthquake but she died of some rare disease. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a large part of what I think is going on uh, with prophecy. And what we have to, uh, the difficult task that we, we have before us, if we're going to look at the future, is to try and sort out uh, projection mm -hmm. and what is uh, what motives our individual personality might have and how can we get at, is there any type of signal coming back to us from the future that we could correctly interpret without um, projecting mm -hmm. uh, something that would create an illusion. So in the case of this particular psychic, one would have to uh, distinguish between the possibility that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, like the day came along and her psyche had to create some situation in order to fulfill her philosophy or her prophecy even if it was just on the personal level of the end of her own life. Or it's either that or that uh, she had some kind of authentic information from the future and was making an accurate prediction that she was going to die on that particular date. And uh, Right, and, and of course we can never really know. The mm -hmm. third possibility would be the one most convenient for my theory. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the way of, 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 of trying to figure out where uh, the species I I is heading mm -hmm. that, that's, that I employ, mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll kind of start with an analogy. Let's say we wanted to find out 
uh, where John Jenkins was heading in his life. Mm -hmm. Now, if we were to approach from the point of view of reductive science and the fact that we have biometrics available to us and we could hook you up to all kinds of sensors and find out on a moment-by-moment -moment basis how your liver enzymes were fluctuating and your heart rate and so forth, but mm -hmm, it would, mm -hmm. unless you had some acute medical condition, it probably wouldn't really tell us where your life is heading. Mm -hmm. And often we try and use tools uh, like databases and economic trends and uh, people look at all kinds of different things to, to map out the future. The, the source that I would use, would want to use, if I were trying to figure out where you were going, would, if I could have only one source of information, might be your dreams. Because mm. the dreams mm. um, may show an underlying mythology, an underlying kind of archetypal pattern that your life is trying to unfold. It's not going to tell me when things are going to happen, but it may show a, 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 a deep pattern, a global pattern at work. So basically what Jung said is that what dreams are to the individual, mythologies, which often are derived from people's dreams, uh, are to the collective. Mm, mm. And mythologies are, are not things that are occurring only in the past, but are uh, happening uh, incredibly in our society, especially with all the media that we have available. And, but they're occurring in things like science fiction movies, um, and also in people's dreams, in uh, ideas that religious cultists may have, and so forth. Didn't Carl Jung himself have a series of more or less prophetic dreams on the eve of World War I? He did, and you can see pictures of it in some of the, the illustrated books. Uh, he saw like a, a bloody cross hmm. uh, in the sky. Also, uh, before World War II, he was working as a psychoanalyst in the Weimar Republic, pre-war Germany, and he noticed that a lot of his educated, highly civilized German patients were dreaming about Wotan, mm. uh, a god of war. Mm. And he called this phenomenon Wotanism, and he was able to uh, roughly predict that somebody like Hitler was going to emerge and be the focus of this warlike spirit that was going to come out. So by looking at the mythologies that are um, in the ascendant in a particular culture and using the tools of dream interpretation, using the tools of metaphorical analysis, uh, we may start to see a pattern. What's happening down there in the tectonic plates? What's really happening? What is the, the, the prime mover uh, that other trends um, may be more uh, superficial symptoms of, like economics and, and, mm. and so mm -hmm. forth, though, though some people will believe that economics or certain historical forces are the prime mover. But when we look out at the world today, and, and the deeply troubled world today, and we look out at things like environmental <laughs> problems and political problems and economic problems, ultimately all of these problems have a single source, which is human psychology. And although the tendency of our time uh, in the secular world is toward a kind of fundamentalist materialism that doesn't like, that, that sees what's happening in the psyche, even though it's using the human psyche to observe all these different things with an affectation of objectivity, it somehow doesn't take into account that what's going through my mind, even the most nebulous and vague fantasies 
um, are factual occurrences. I might have some weird random daydream, but it's a fact that I had that specific daydream. I might have a, 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 mm. a particular dream that seems to have no connection with the waking world, but it's a fact that I had that particular dream. Mm -hmm. And these facts have a certain meaning. Now you do personal dream work yourself and you do dream analysis. What do you see in terms of uh, trends in uh, human psychology today and where that how that might be revealing of the state of the world and, and where that might be uh, pointing to in the near future? Well, uh, this is how I, how I got into Jung. This relates to the, the science fiction stories that, that, that haunted me. What I was observing, but I didn't realize it at the time, was an emergent archetype. Mm. An archetype that seems to be about uh, a kind of evolutionary event horizon that, that we are heading to mm. as a species. And although I've, I've pointed out the, the fallacy that involved in uh, prophets wanting to see things happening in their lifetime, mm -hmm. and I don't attach any time scales uh, to any of these future events, we, we are a generation that, that has more credibility in thinking that some enormous change might be on the way because without having to resort to any willing suspension of, of disbelief or any kind of fantastical projection, there are so many forces at work right now that have are unprecedented mm -hmm. that could create a game over scenario from um, biological weapons getting out of control, uh, uh, extreme climate change. And the acceleration and so of forth. change seems unprecedented right, right now. Right, exactly. And so the metabolism of the species is heating up. Mm. And it, it seems that we're getting more and more examples or permutations of this archetype. But getting back to some of the science fiction stories, and, and again, this is, you asked me about the themes that occur in dreams. What, mm -hmm. what I've noticed, and I, I started studying the science fiction stories and then found that, that people's dreams often have parallel um, the same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, when I was a child, I happened to read Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction novel, the classic Childhood's End, mm -hmm. which was written in 1953. When I read it, though, I was absolutely shocked because what I thought were my most particular and unique fantasies, here they were written in this book, written four years before I was born. How mm. was that possible? Mm. And <clears throat> um, what I discovered was that, that Jung's idea of the collective unconscious mm -hmm. um, accounts for this. Mm -hmm. that um, my, my psyche is not, you know, we have this presumption that we're sort of alone in our minds and that we're born as a blank slate, tabula rasa, mm -hmm. but actually uh, our minds interpenetrate with a kind of collective mind. Could you sketch the outline of the story uh, of Childhood's End? Okay. I'll actually start with it with a simpler version mm -hmm. of this archetype that I've called the singularity archetype. That it, uh, happen in the form of two dreams, and then I'll, we'll, we'll get okay. to childhoods in and, and see how they parallel. Now, what's also interesting is that when you have a real archetype, it's going to occur often in different cultures at different time periods, and obviously different individuals who may be very different. And basically, the technique of Jungian psychology is we sort of leave out the idiosyncrasies of any particular version and see what is the the pattern that unites all of the different examples. And so we kind of try and strip out some of the noise and get at the, mm. the signal. Mm -hmm. 
So we're going to start with um, a couple of dreams that were recorded by one of Jung's most brilliant colleagues, a woman named Marie-Louise Marie von Franz, mm -hmm. and you can find these dreams des described in the book that was meant to be an introduction to Jung's psychology called Man and His Symbols. Mm -hmm. And we don't know much about the dreamer except that von Franz said that she was a simple woman um, brought up in Protestant surroundings. And that's not much of a description, but it's enough to really contrast with uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who is a non-religious astrophysicist and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in his case, working as an artist, which is another way to access the unconscious and writing a science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in the, in the first dream, uh, which we're going to try and bring up here, um, the dreamer is standing with a spirit guide um, just above Jerusalem and she sees uh, the dark wing of Satan blocking out the Sun and this seems like a, uh, a dark portent like the coming of the Antichrist or Armageddon apocalypse and, and so forth and now in the in the second dream she's witnessing the same event but instead of standing on the earth, her point of view is now up in the heavens. And what looked like the dark wing of Satan is now revealed to be the white wafting cloak of God. And who is trying, but uh, maybe unsuccessfully, to reach uh, Jesus standing on the right. And there is also a white spiral of light in the sky. And what we see here um, is that what from the human point of view standing on the earth seems to be a becoming of a divine darkness mm -hmm. um, often associated with the end of world and apocalypse and so forth is from a more cosmic vantage away from the ego in other words seen as some kind of transcendent evolutionary event mm. and even though it's the very same thing and the white spiral uh, von Franz points out that the way the white spiral is is oriented it seems to be inviting the viewer or the dreamer um, toward a, another whole nother dimension hmm. okay and the spiral is also a classic evolutionary symbol now we uh, go to childhood's end okay just take a little bit longer to describe <coughs> and uh, in the beginning of childhood's end UFOs appear around the earth exactly the same opening scenario of the midwitch cuckoos or village of the damned mm. and uh, a group of extraterrestrials that call themselves the overlords through all communications and announce that they're here to help out mankind and <clears throat> they one of the things that they do is make sure that, that we can't harm ourselves so that through some technological magic any type of weapons from nuclear missiles, artillery, even gunfire uh, is made to return to the sender basically so all mm. warfare becomes impossible mm -hmm. and they basically say that they're here to help out mankind mm -hmm. and, and, the, and they appear to do that and in fact they really are benevolent uh, one of the, the strange things that puzzles people is that they will not appear physically uh, and, or nor allow any photograph or representation of them to be seen uh, for a space of two generations and people speculate they must look you know like giant insects or slime mold or something horrifying and they don't want mm. us to see mm -hmm. 
Finally, after the two generations, 50 years have passed, and it's been a time of, of great uh, prosperity and technological advancement uh, for the human species, the beings step out, out of their crafts, and um, they have giant ebony wings and horns and tails, and with a kind of fascinating incongruity in the world of technological materialism stereotypical of science fiction, we see this specter of like the Christian past. Mm. We see this mythological element. Mm. And the way that Clark explains this um, almost sounds like the collective unconscious. He says that their, their association with evil was a race memory of a future event. And it wasn't because they themselves were evil, but because they signaled an evolutionary change. Mm. And the evolutionary change wasn't evil either. It's just that change itself to the conservatism of the mm -hmm. psyche mm -hmm. um, is seen as threatening, just as death is seen as threatening, mm -hmm. um, even though, from my point of view, it's uh, uh, maybe a portal opening or maybe mm -hmm. something quite wonderful. Mm -hmm. And that's also mm -hmm. what people report to us who have near-death experiences. Mm. In any case, uh, <coughs> now the now the overlords are able to mingle in human society, and they seem to be particularly interested in any reports of parapsychological phenomenon. Mm. And one of them, whose name is Rishevarek, uh visits the home of a man who has the largest uh, civilian uh, library of books about the parapsychology. Mm -hmm. And as a trivia question, do you know what? Um, Celebrity had the largest collection library of parapsychological books. I do not know. Okay, Jackie Gleason. Mm, interesting. Oddly enough. In any case, he was also the man that, that, according to Jackie Gleason's widow, was actually shown things about UFOs by ri his friend Richard Nixon. Mm. In any case, <coughs> Rishevrek is observing a group of people, and, and, and a whole bunch of this man's friends show up because it's kind of a celebrity thing that. There are very few overlords, so they all want to say that they've met one. And it almost seems like for 1953, like a prophetic anticipation of goofy New Agers, because hmm. the people um, seem to have a very dilettante attitude, and Rishevrek reading through these books about parapsychology kind of sighs and, and feels it's almost hopeless to, to figure out what, what's real and what's nonsense and confabulation and so on. And one of the New Age entertainments that, that's going on is there people decide to have a session with the Ouija board. Hmm. And the Ouija board, when they ask it, who are you, spells out I-A-M-A-L-L, -L, hmm. I am all, hmm. which sounds very much like the collective unconscious. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they, um, to see if they've contacted something real, ask an interesting question, what are the coordinates of the overlords star of the solar system that they came from, which is information that had been kept secret. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the Ouija board spells out the correct coordinates. And what Rishevarek, um believes um, has happened is that he has encountered something that the overlords have been looking for, which is what they call subject zero, which will be the first human being that will break the mold. Because what's happened is that the overlords have been sent, like midwives, Mm. And it's interesting how much that resembles midwitch, the midwitch mm. cuckoos, mm -hmm. um, to, to kind of help supervise an, an evolutionary quantum uh, event. 
and there is a kind of secular or naturalistic God concept in childhood Zen called the overmind. And the overmind is this gigantic disembodied intelligence that's aware of where intelligence or consciousness may be forming anywhere in the universe. And it sends the overlords, this particular species, and their physiognomy and wings and tails and so forth was just the adaptation to the environmental conditions of their planet. They're mm -hmm. actually quite benevolent. Mm -hmm. To help and supervise the process because it's understood that this process, just like the one that we're obviously in, is an extremely precarious one. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> they, what, what they look for is, and it's almost like a secular or, or a naturalistic version of a messiah, subject zero, the first individual will break the mold. Hmm. But Rishevrek's kind of puzzled because all the people at the seance seem to be rather mediocre. But it turns out that one of the uh, one young woman who is there um, is pregnant, and it's her unborn child that is subject zero. And as soon as he's born, um, he immediately exhibits parapsychological powers of different sorts. And then, uh, kind of like a seed crystal falling into a saturated solution, all the babies that are born after him are also of this new type. Hmm. And very quickly, um, they form a kind of collective identity, which is another one of the attributes of this archetype. Hmm. So they're telepathically all aware of each other. And then as they start to um, exercise and develop their parapsychological powers, they all kind of translocate to one continent and join hands and form a moving spiral on this continent. And then to the last human being that's left alive of the old type. And, mm -hmm. and there's an interesting, the reason why it's called Childhood's End is that once this new type of, um, th th this new evolutionary type is created and a certain critical number of these children are born, um, human beings become sterile. Mm -hmm. And this is why, why the coming of the overlord um, why their physiognomy was associated with evil is because it meant the end of the old genome. Mm. And so from the point of view of the biological imperative of the old genome, this was evil, but seen from another point of view, it was a necessary transcendent evolutionary step. Mm. Mm. Interestingly enough, because later we're going to talk about 2012, I read in uh, Time magazine a couple years ago that uh, you know sperm counts in men have been dropping amazingly, hmm. um, less than half of what they were in the 1930s. And according to a Swedish study, the average male will be sterile by 2012. Wow. And that's just more like a, a humorous coincidence as far as I can tell, but it's just interesting. Fascinating. Do you think that Arthur C. Clarke's childhoods end prefigured his, his later work, 2001 Space Odyssey? Absolutely. And I think that was one of the great creative collaborations of our time because 2001 has everything to say about um, Which these was events. It's one of the great examples of, the, of this archetype. Collaborated with Stanley Kubrick. Right. Yeah. And so to the last human being of the old type left alive who's able to witness the last evolutionary event that would even be perceivable by an ordinary human consciousness He's, th he's witnessing the kind of energetic merger of these children that are now leaving their bodies with the overmind, and it looks to him like an aurora borealis, a white spiral of light in the sky. Mm -hmm. 
So here we have just two examples, and there, there are many, many of them. I'll just give a third really quick one to kind of finish up the examples. Um, we see some of the exact specific elements, the dark wing of Satan descending, that from the human or ego-bound point of view seems to be evil. Mm. And uh, then from the transcendent point of view, analogous to the, to the second dream that we looked at, um, it's revealed as a divine event, and again with the white spiral of light in the sky. Mm. So here's a third example that a young man told me um, uh, just a, uh, four or five years ago. Um, he's uh, standing in the forest, and there's lightning, and then there seem to be earthquakes, and it feels like the whole earth is shaking apart, and the star sky gets dark. It feels like it's the end of the world. And then there's a kind of break in the dark clouds, and an eagle comes spiraling out of this break in the clouds, and in its talons is a golden egg with a, mm. surrounded mm. by an aura of light. And the eagle comes spiraling down and then safely deposits the egg at the top of a tree. And mm. so, uh, again and again, uh, people, just in the last month, I've heard two or three dreams that again have some permutation of this basic pattern. So it really does seem that these dreams and this uh, creative work uh, that's coming from the collective unconscious is revealing messages about where human beings are going. Yeah, and the message is again um, a kind of rough template. Mm -hmm. And my feeling about the future is that it contains both uh, determined and undetermined elements. The, the undetermined elements are what allow for free will, for example, mm -hmm. and the evolution of consciousness. Because consciousness and mind has no meaning if you have a completely determined universe, because then every thought that I'm thinking is just as determined as the movement of the planets in the solar system, mm -hmm. and, and then consciousness really does seem to have a, a meaning at that point. Mm -hmm. And so um, now when we talk about this end event, or this eschaton event, we can see that there really is an analogy um, to the death of the individual mm -hmm. because our futures, presuming that we have free will, um, have uh, determined and undetermined aspects. But one thing that is determined, but in some cases only roughly determined, is that inexorably each of us is hurtling toward an individual death. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the dietary choices I make, the risks that I choose to take or not take, may influence that mm -hmm. in some cases. In other cases, there could be a macro-geological event, like a volcanic eruption or something, that, that takes out the whole community that I'm in, all in basically one moment, and it might be completely um, determined, in a sense, outside of my free will. And though from a, a more spiritual point of view, the choices that we make and the, and the type of um, psyche that we develop may determine where we go from that event horizon. And so uh, this pattern, this basic pattern that seems to be unfolding is different than, say, a specific prophecy that says on such and such a date, you know, this will happen. Mm -hmm. And I believe that um, the specific prophet prophecies are incredibly unhelpful to people because they um, diminish the quality of free will <coughs> and 
uh, the importance of the in what's happening in the person's individual mm. psychology. They also can inject an image of a preconceived notion about what's going to happen in a very specific way. Right, and, and that uh, causes people to have a kind of be a kind of passive consumer of prophecy. Mm. Of, well, I'm just mm. going to wait for for this countdown. Right. Um, and of course, it binds them ever more into linear time. And this is something we'll talk about later with, with, with 2012. And it, from the point of view of the individual, the end of the world is guaranteed anyway, mm -hmm. because we all are heading toward our individual event horizon. So whether I face that alone or whether I face that with everybody else, my job as an individual remains the same. Hmm. And at least for me, that is to become more aware and, 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 and to help other people, especially in, in increasing their awareness. And from the point of view of a shaman, for example, to the extent that the end of the world is about the end of time, they have already experientially been to a place where time does not exist. Right, and that's why when, when we have people running with 2012 and turning it into a time <coughs> of, uh, and, and often new age people, uh, a tendency I've noticed in them is that they often are very naive about how much their thinking is actually conditioned by fundamentalist Christian parents or grandparents. And so <coughs> ideas of um, denying the shadow and it's all good and everything is white light, you know, come directly from that tradition. And also <coughs> the idea of an end of the world with a kind of rapture attached to it mm -hmm. um, is also um, maybe a very uh, modernized version of that uh, Christian tendency to, to see things that way. A bias that time is linear and there is a definite end point, whereas all native cosmologies and many of the ancient uh, philosophies see time as cyclical. Right, and so the idea is that um, this end of time thing, um, from the from the point of view of the ego, it sees like, well, that must mean when time runs out. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> the but the idea that that you're talking about, and that people in many different traditions, including some of the mystics from the Christian tradition, um, experience a transcendent event. Often it's associated with meditation or a vision or, or something like that, mm -hmm. where they, they step out of that linear time track and experience eternity. Mm -hmm. And um, the human psyche will tend to confuse that with the linear countdown, mm -hmm. which, has much, which is very body-centered, because our bodies are kind of embedded in linear time, because we're aging and we are visibly going through different linear time cycles, our need to sleep, and so forth. And we, we then, then tend to project that out and, and, and see a kind of linear time countdown. Interesting. So it's almost like accessing the end of time or the experience of eternity is like stepping outside of the horizontal flow of past, present, future. And it's somewhat of a, a mistake to to map that experience onto any particular date within the historical continuum. Exactly. And it, it, even if there were a particular date, it's just like when they ask people, you know, would you want to know the day that you're going to die? Mm, sure. It, it probably wouldn't be advantageous uh, to know that. Mm -hmm. But again, we see this projection onto end of time prophecies. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do is 
uh, take out the idiosyncrasies of any particular um, way of looking at the eschaton. You know, revelations mm -hmm. that so many people do strange things with was written, the authors of Revelations thought they were describing events that were going to happen in their lifetime. Mm, or the first century AD. Right. And so I don't attach uh, to time scales, and I, I'm trying to look at this event and see also how um, it's affecting us right now, because I think that the, the changes, the evolutionary changes and themes of change are um, happening right now. Mm -hmm. And that's something else that we can talk about is what what is happening as we're heading toward the event horizon, what may intensify as we get uh, close to it, uh, but also what are the present trends that are happening mm -hmm. and that are uh, talked about in some of the more developed versions of the singularity archetype that we see in certain great science fiction classics. And maybe we could segue into that or I don't know, where, where do you want to well, go more into this? Well, it seems that... Uh, <coughs> We've talked about uh, 2012, and uh, from the vantage point of um, the end of time being an archetype, uh, you've mentioned singularity and the eschaton. Uh, eschaton is a term that was used by uh, philosopher Henry Corbin, and Terence McKenna later used it in his own uh, uh, cosmology of time, which also uses the 2012 date. How do you approach the archetype? of the end of time and how do you explain that and um, uh, and human beings uh, experience of that? Well I think what, what's perceived as the end of time is where there's a rupture of plane hmm. where our experience of reality where, where we kind of look toward the future and see a place that we can't look beyond and it's like a, a Terence was fond of quoting J.B.S. Haldane that reality was not only stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. Mm, mm. And so when we look beyond a certain point, uh, then we, we sort of reach a horizon line beyond which we, we, we can't see. Mm. And I can project what I might be like in my 70s or 80s, but it might be very hard for me to project what I'd be like after I die. Mm -hmm. And so when we um, look out at this event horizon, um, we, we may not be able to, we have trouble seeing beyond a certain point because uh, it just gets too, too weird or too it's strange unknowable. or beyond. Perhaps right. the archetype is about the unknowable and perhaps that is precisely what uh, uh, stimulates uh, human beings to evolve. Right, and if we consider the, the range of evolution that's already occurred on this planet so that we're not reaching in any fantastical way towards something that's improbable, and we look at the difference in between a one-celled life form and the present human being. Mm -hmm. Now that's what's already occurred, but mm -hmm. there seems to be something about what's occurring where there, there's actually more of a geometric progression. Mm -hmm. So the next step could be something even greater than that. Well, what would be the vision of a one-celled life form of a full-scale human mm -hmm. being? Mm -hmm. Now, one, way, one possibility that, that would make it very hard for us to see beyond that point. It's something that, that's um, included in a lot of the different versions, like Childhood's End mm -hmm. and, um, and the Midwich Cookers or Village of the Damned, is something that I, I call Homo Gestalt. Hmm. This was a, a, a 
a term that was coined by the science fiction writer Theodore Sturgeon, who wrote in the 1950s a science fiction novel called More Than Human, where there's a group of sort of odd human individuals that are kind of like mutants, and they each have very, um, each of them has a, an intense talent, but also intense liabilities, and they kind of come together, find each other, and form a kind of group organism mm. with a telepathic bond, and that they're able to kind of each almost like each of them an organ of a body work together as a whole and he called that whole homo gestalt mm -hmm. and we see that in the midwich cuckoos or village of the dam where these new children that are born as a result of a ufo occurrence um, have a telepathic bond we see it with the children in um, child's end and we see it in many of the different examples especially in the dune books uh, there are many different versions of homo gestalt and this seems to uh, describe uh, an evolutionary theme that's already in operation because mm -hmm. what it seems is that the more normative case is a kind of group telepathy when we look at flocks of birds and schools of fish mm. um, a, a, a group telepathic mind does not seem to be a, a fantastical futuristic thing in fact we find in tribal cultures or certainly there are reports about Australian Aborigines that they seem to have far more of this um, group telepathy effect, mm -hmm. but it seemed to serve a great evolutionary purpose to uh, cut off that function for a while. Mm -hmm. And with the creation of the ego, what we got was a kind of encapsulation of consciousness. And by encapsulating consciousness and putting up stronger boundaries and firewalls between um, the individual and the kind of group mind, what we got was the advancement of a great evolutionary variable that our colleague Terence called novelty mm -hmm. and by novelty he meant the creation of new forms but also density of interconnectedness I guess mm -hmm. we better define this term mm -hmm. so for example the most <coughs> novel and densely interconnected artifact that we know of would be say the internet mm -hmm. and interestingly enough the the creator of the internet is the most densely interconnected organic object that we know of which is the human brain mm, mm -hmm. okay so somehow biological evolution and human technological evolution seem to closely parallel each other and that's something else that turns up um, in the material um, surrounding this archetype mm -hmm. so with the encapsulation of consciousness there is a much greater possibility of an individual differentiation and novelty mm. the, the physical metaphor that I use is sort of putting an irritant inside of an oyster, mm. living oyster, and then it starts to accrete all these beautiful opalescent layers around it and you start to get this pearl. And the pearl is representation of the individual consciousness. Mm. Now that creation of individuality because of the sort of Taoist alchemical aspect of things, that, that dark and light come together. Mm -hmm. You don't get a big top without a big bottom, mm -hmm. um, as one person said. Um, you, you, um, as we sort of things intensify, then the outer edge of darkness and the outer edge of light both intensify with mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be even, well, maybe that's too much of a tangent for right now, but we'll come back to mm -hmm. that maybe. But so anyway, with the growth of the individual consciousness, a lot of it is richly pathological. Like James Hillman says, the soul pathologizes. So even though many of the things that the, the ego creates are very toxic and pathological, it served, has served a great evolutionary purpose, mm -hmm. 
but has also kind of led us into a blind alley, a kind of evolutionary cul-de-sac, because with the encapsulation of consciousness comes a diminishment of any type of feeling or awareness of the living matrix mm. that surrounds us. Mm -hmm. And this is what seems to characterize the modern man with his um, cruelty and, and bureaucratic indifference to what's going on, is that there's this uh, separation from um, the living matrix that, that um, surrounds um, because surrounds Because uh, there's differences perceived between us and them because the entire culture is imbued with this bias of individualism and that as a result of that uh, cruelties and so forth can be justified. Right, what happens is you can think of it as sort of how you locate the, the Godhead and this is particularly um, strong in, in, the, in the West. So mm -hmm. for example, from the Eastern point of view, like, like the, the, the salutation namaste where mm -hmm. you're sort of greeting the divinity in the other person, but it's also in yourself and, it, and it's pantheistically in everything. Mm -hmm. But then you get all the way in the other, you get a, a, a distorted version of that in say, for example, the Puritan minister, Jonathan Edwards, and he would give these incredible sermons. I don't know if you've ever read one of them, but they would, he would say things like, to God, you are nothing but the most loathsome of spiders, and he barely can stand to even hold on to you over the, the fiery pits of hell, and you know, and so forth. <laughs> where, um, and Jung wrote about this in a book called Aeon, mm -hmm. that in the, in the Christian tradition, when it broke from Gnosticism, it, it developed this imbalanced idea that, that God was the sunum bonum, and mm -hmm. it also did this to, to Christ, and it kind of whitewashed his whole background. The highest good. Right, and, and, and that evil, even though this seems rather improbable, is only located in man, his mm -hmm. creation, even though we're made in the image of God, um, and, and therefore um, this sort of schizoid split occurs where the Godhead is exclusively located out into God the Father mm -hmm. or something, and now you're this wretched sinner. Mm, um, interesting. I okay. think what's at the root of that is also reflected in a misunderstanding of the term transcendence because within that Christian theology that you just described God is considered transcendent above beyond and somewhat disconnected lofty aloof from the world but the real meaning of the word transcendence um, uh, when you transcend something you don't remove yourself from the presence of that which is transcended uh, transcendence includes that which is transcended. So it's, it's really an interesting question of uh, the imminence of God, or the imminence of the eternal, unmanifest ground of all being. Is that present and accessible to human beings? I guess it would be to the extent that we can transcend our individual egos. Right, and now that's a more balanced and integrated version of things, but what happens is that when you get a kind of extreme psychic position, mm -hmm. um, like seeing the Godhead is only out there and I'm just, all the bad is in me, all the good is in God and mm -hmm. this type of thing, then what happens is Jung used a term enantiodromia that uh -huh. he borrowed from the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. It's mm -hmm. a tendency for systems to oscillate between extremes. Mm -hmm. like. If you have a, uh, an anima projection on someone and you idealize them and see them as wonderful and this an angelic person, then when you find out who the actual person is, then you'll tend toward the
the equal and opposite disillusionment and love may turn to hate and this type of thing because one imbalance, like a pendulum that's, you know, swings all the way to one side, it's going to tend to swing all the mm -hmm. way to the other side. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, um, Christ and Antichrist, as Jung points out in Aeon, are kind of like a, an inevitable pair. Mm -hmm. So when you have a, a, a culture where um, the Godhead is located exclusively on the outside, then you'll get certain individuals that will have the Antichrist configuration where mm -hmm. the Godhead is here. I'm number one. Everything else is real estate and livestock. Mm, and mm -hmm. so then this becomes a natural um, tendency of the encapsulated ego to see things in this way, like Napoleon saying, you know, you're either a king or a pawn. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and another example of, of this type of problem of the, the encapsulated ego um, losing sight of the living matrix that, mm -hmm. it, that it's in uh, was in a, uh, a Graham Greene novel called The Third Man. It was made into a wonderful um, mm. um, film noir in the 1940s called um, with the same title The Third Man starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles mm -hmm. and in, in the um, novel it's it's set just after the end of World War II and um, while France was still occupied by the Allied powers and hadn't been mm -hmm. turned over yet mm -hmm. um, there's a man played by Orson Welles who was the childhood friend of the Joseph Cotton character. I'll just I don't remember their original mm -hmm. character names, mm -hmm. so I'll just refer to them as the actors for now. Mm -hmm. And uh, who was the most charismatic person? He was the most mm -hmm. charming, you know, a great Gatsby-like figure. Mm -hmm. And um, but what he's discovered now that he's in the um, um, was it the OSO or whatever the the precursor to the CIA military intelligence or mm -hmm. whatever yeah. that um, this wonderful friend of his had been selling diluted penicillin on the black market and all these French children who had taken it had died. Mm -hmm. And he just can't believe that his, just like the, the shock we feel about the Western ego, that we can get such a charming and charismatic person, but that they can do such horrible things. And he just can't believe that um, his friend was capable of this. And finally they have a, uh, a dramatic confrontation in the denouement of the, the film and the novel, and they're on the top of the Eiffel Tower. Mm. And um, his friend is as charming as ever and doesn't try and deny what, what, what he's done at all. And, and just uh, tells him uh, that he looks out at the, they look out at the people that look like little dots on the mm -hmm. street. And he says, well, come on, old sport. You mean, you mean to tell me if I were to offer you 10 million francs, if one of those little dots down there were to stop moving, that you'd really turn me down? Mm. Well, this is the, the view of uh, some of the politicians that... that Mm -hmm. are living right now mm -hmm. is uh, to them the people down there are just these little dots mm. and those are the people you know the other life forms um, this is this is real estate and livestock you know th this is something that they um, mm -hmm. uh, have this tremendous feeling of separation from just like we see mythologically in a modern version of it the Darth Vader character of the Star Wars that he kind of insulates himself from the rest of the world in his breath mask or we even see in the second film some kind of like little thermos-like container that he keeps himself in mm. to separate himself from the organic matrix that surrounds him. And so this was, the, the point of all this is that with our present powers of technology, mm -hmm. the novelty enhancing aspect of the encapsulated ego has now taken us into a terminal blind alley where if we continue to have territorial aggression and the unfeelingness toward the matrix that surrounds us, 
mm. with our present level of technology, we're, we're pretty much doomed. And so what we seem to be seeing, um, both technologically and in people's dreams and in uh, anomalous occurrences, is that we are getting to the point where the oysters may have to break open and the pearls may have to lie together again and where they may need to be, this is the homo gestalt idea, a kind of uh, unprecedented interfacing of individual consciousness and the group mind. Mm, and however, um, <clears throat> from the, the ego point of view, this is seen as catastrophic because mm -hmm. it's assumed that that individual consciousness is lost. And often in a lot of Eastern versions of transcendent events, individual consciousness is just sort of composted back into some homogeneous mass. Well, I think that's uh, uh, part of the continuing misunderstanding uh, because the relationship between individual consciousness and its eternal backdrop matrix, uh, the eternal unmanifest ground of being, I don't believe that that's a polar relationship in the sense of black and white. So it's not right. a choice that needs to be made between being dissolved in the background matrix or retaining your autonomy as an individual entity. I think it's really about the relationship between the the finite, manifest, incarnate, embodied soul and the infinite, eternal backdrop. So it's the relationship between the finite and the infinite. And the finite can be embedded, in fact it is embedded within the infinite, in a way that uh, uh, has been and always will be. I think it's a matter of the individual consciousness becoming transparent to its eternal backdrop. So in that sense, again, transcendence doesn't annihilate what it transcends. Right, and that's why we don't have to have an enantiodromia where either you're caught in your individual neurotic hell of ego-encapsulated consciousness or disappear completely into the infinite, mm -hmm. but we can have a kind of uh, interfacing mm -hmm of individual and collective consciousness. Now, for example, this happens in the, in the Dune books where there's this uh, super highly conscious sisterhood called the Bene Gesserit, mm -hmm. and um, an advanced initiate uh, takes a powerful psychotropic called the Water of Life, mm -hmm. and um, if she survives uh, ingesting this su su highly poisonous substance, which, which many don't, uh, then she retains her individual consciousness but now has a, um, an awareness of all the other reverend mothers who have also successfully mm. partaken of this uh, substance. Mm -hmm. and, and now there's this interface, interfacing of um, the individual consciousness and the group consciousness. Now on a technological level, we see this kind of theme um, playing out mm -hmm. with the novelty of say the internet where mm -hmm. now um, the individual researcher can kind of interface um, technologically with all these other minds. Or telecommunications and cell phones, for example. Exactly. And so basically, um, <clears throat> um, a lot of people tend to view technology as, oh, well, that's unnatural and, 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 and mm. that type of thing. Or it's in some completely other realm than, than what nature is doing. But nature mm -hmm. created a technology extruding primate. Mm -hmm. And it, it is simply a natural function of our genetics that we would start creating these kind of exteriorized nervous systems and mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. exteriorized forms 
but that uh, completely resemble and parallel um, the mainline evolutionary trends that mm -hmm. create our, our physical structure. And uh, we're, we're going to take a break in a, um, a few seconds, but when we come back, maybe you can talk more about what all this has to do with 2012 and some of your work with the Mind Prophecy. Well, that sounds very good. Uh, uh, just I'd like to close with saying that uh, the external manifestation of these technologies uh, almost seems to replace what used to be innate faculties. If you look at the ancient wisdom of uh, the Tibetan yogis, for example, they could develop magical faculties or siddhis which would enable them to uh, tune into other times and places and it was almost like the uh, uh, internet of the ancient world and then as we uh, move forward through time and we lose those spiritual faculties we, it's almost like we have to develop the material technologies to replace them so again that is that uh, sort of process of enantiodromia that you were talking about and it does seem that we are moving towards one extreme pole of that process of enantiodromia in the historical cycle that we are about to conclude and that can open us up into the entire discussion of 2012. Great. Okay, we're back and see we've changed seats. We were last talking about uh, technology and the idea that technology has in many ways been an antagonist uh, to human consciousness. Uh, like you were pointing out with the cities that as we tended to rely on technology that we would tend to lose a corresponding psychic function. And it's interesting that the Greek philosophers um, had almost the same negative things that people often say about television and computers when the technology of writing was created. They said that basically people would uh, lose their memories, which to a large extent they did, because when they had an oral tradition they had much better memories. And so I guess we've seen technology be an adversary to consciousness, but I think in other ways it's also um, a catalyst, and especially recently with the development of a more visual modality and also with a kind of etherealization of technology itself that's going on right now. I think we're seeing a, a, a cycle shift in evolution that is also paralleled by a shift in technology itself. But I'm interested to hear how um, the Maya um, that lived with such a different level of technology, um, is there anything about the great cycles of time that they mapped out that would in any way account for or locate this astounding technological age that, that we live in right now? Yeah, sure. Um, the Maya calendar provides a great deal of insight into these cyclic processes. I think basically the general insight in the whole discussion about the relationship between technology or materialism and uh, spiritual vision or spirituality is that all cycles that human beings experience from very small cycles like the day cycle for example to the lunar cycle where you have the waxing phase and the waning phase to the year cycle where we move from polar extremes of winter to summer uh, to even these larger more vast periods of time 
uh, basically there's two phases to any cycle of time. There's the ascending phase and the descending phase. Uh, if we use the analogy, the metaphor of the day, uh, from midnight, the point of maximum darkness, we start to ascend towards uh, increasing light. And that basically runs from midnight to high noon. And then we turn the corner and from high noon we descend into increasing darkness until we hit midnight again. Uh, this is a, uh, an insight uh, into the nature of cyclic time. And the Maya calendar uh, encodes information about this vast period of time that human beings experience on Earth. It's called the precession of the equinoxes. Uh, this is a 26,000 year period caused by the fact that the Earth wobbles on its axis. And so it has the effect of changing our angular orientation uh, to the larger uh, sky, the larger galactic picture. Uh, it basically has the effect that uh, it's called precession because it, it has the effect that the sun will shift backwards uh, around the ecliptic. Uh, and it takes 26,000 years for one complete circuit of the Sun around the ecliptic to occur. Now this 26,000 year period is recognized in uh, ancient traditions. Um, astrology has something to say about it. Western astrology recognizes that the 26,000 year period can be divided into 12 chapters or ages and they're called zodiacal ages. Uh, we are currently ending a uh, zodiacal age, the age of Pisces, and we're approaching the age of Aquarius. Uh, so in traditional astrology, these uh, transition points between the ages are considered critical. The entire 26,000 year period um, isn't necessarily divided into ascending and descending phases in Western astrology. Uh, we have to look deeper into the mythic past and the Egyptian antecedents of these ideas, going all the way back to ancient Hinduism and especially in ancient India, in the Vedic chron chronology, uh, the world ages, it's called the Yuga periods, the period of the Yugas. In these ancient books of the Vedic cosmologists, uh, for example, the laws of Manu, uh, provides great insight into the uh, processional cycle, the great 26,000 year period. And indeed, we do find that there is this ascending phase and a descending phase. So this relates to what we were talking about earlier, about uh, the relationship between a type of spiritual consciousness on the planet and a more material outer directed consciousness that results in technological developments. So uh, what's interesting to talk about is kind of this, this historical process. We can look at how uh, a lot of times uh, historians identify the dawn of history as a time roughly 6,000 years ago which was really just the advent of this new style of culture characterized by hierarchies of dominance and patriarchal structures uh, roughly you know, 6,000 years ago.
preceding that, you had this background matrix uh, of mother goddess worshiping cultures. Um, they're referred to as the Magdalenian culture, and it was characterized by a very, very different style. Uh, what uh, social historian Rianne Eisler refers to as the partnership mode. Now, the partnership mode used to be just called prehistory. Now it's being recognized as a valid substrate of the historical era that we identify more with uh, the advent of um, uh, dominator mode, a dominator mode that sets up hierarchies of dominance. Um, the interesting thing then to look at here is that the earlier phase was characterized by this partnership mode. And this partnership mode required a different type of consciousness, a type of consciousness that was uh, more integrative, more able to integrate itself into other systems, into other aspects of the, uh, of the environment. Uh, I think of this, anyway, as a, a higher type of consciousness, a consciousness that is more multidimensional, more fluid, more adaptable, to the many systems that it, that it does perceive itself as being connected to. So partnership is about connection. Um, as we've come down closer to the current times, there has been this advent of this dominator mode, which doesn't require the same kind of multidimensional consciousness as the earlier substrate does. In fact, it requires sort of a, an, a limited self-identity, a limited self-identification, uh, and a, a class hierarchy and a structuring of, uh, you know, it results in the haves and the have-nots and so on. So what you have is an increasing process of densification or an advent of increasing materialism. We have been moving deeper and deeper into spiritual uh, limitation and an increase of material technologies and materialism. It very much parallels the ascendancy of the individualized ego consciousness as we come down to the current times. There. Right, and, the, and there's all kinds of great evidence <coughs> of this trend. Uh, the fact that um, as savage as earlier times might look to us, that the per capita um, war death rate of the 20th century is unequaled mm -hmm. in earlier eras. Uh, it's like the Stephen, uh, the James Joyce character Stephen Dedalus said, "History of the nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken." Yes. And so this is a very relevant question to all of us sitting right now on what might be the brink of you know even more uh, dark historical forces of how did we lose this kind of world that many people think, um, you know, the Garden of Eden story even paralleled. How did we lose this uh, Paleolithic time when there was an egalitarian society, when the artifacts were more about the chalice and, and mm -hmm. more about fecundity and things like that, to an era when, um, you know, the, the artifacts and the representations were of the sword and, and of mm -hmm. the weapon and, and so forth. How did we shift into this dominator mode. Well, it's part of the natural seasons of change that the planet experiences. It's part of the matrix of reality that we live in. Um, all, it's kind of like uh, 
the day cycle. You know, um, we can't change the fact that every day that goes by, there's a period of ascending light and there's a period of descending uh, light. And so this is the core insight that is offered to us from, say, the ancient Mayan cosmology uh, that's very nicely reflected in the ancient Vedic or Hindu uh, philosophy of the yugas. And it's basically that the golden age of spiritual light was actually a long time ago, and uh, say 12,000 years ago. And as we've moved into modern times, we've gone through, in the Vedic Yuga system at least, it's from the Golden Age to the Silver Age, which is more dense, then to the Bronze Age, which is even more dense, to the Iron Age, or the Age of Kali Yuga. This is the age of, of greatest spiritual occlusion and greatest uh, materialism. Right, and we should also point out that these metals are increasing in atomic density as we go from gold to iron. Sure, it's about uh, densification. And it's about a limitation of consciousness, too. Um, the key thing to understand about how this relates to 2012, oh, okay, so if we have this model that there's this 26,000 year cycle and one half of it is increasing to light and the other half is increasing towards uh, great darkness, where are the turnabout points? How do we anchor this model in real time? And is there an actual empirical or astronomical event that defines the turnabout points in this process? Okay, and maybe, there, maybe there's um, a piece that we need to add for the, the, the skeptical um, viewer, and, and, and we're encouraging skepticism, who um, might see a disconnect of like, okay, well, sure, there are these astronomical facts about the precession of the equinoxes, but um, is there a way of explaining um, how um, these astronomical events affect collective human psychology? And from our previous discussions, it seems like there are possibilities that fit into a kind of causal view and then a kind of a causal mm -hmm. view. But starting with the causal view, mm -hmm. is there any way that the, the um, precession of the equinoxes or the, these uh, changes in the position of the Earth's orbit um, is, are creating physical effects that, that could affect consciousness? This would be a question for uh, the scientists mm -hmm. to determine. Um, in my recent book, Galactic Alignment, I looked at the uh, work of philosopher Oliver Reiser and uh, the entire question of whether or not we can empirically demonstrate that these astronomical shiftings do affect consciousness on this planet is an entirely separate enterprise from what mm -hmm. I'm really engaged in doing. Mainly what my concern has been to uh, look, to reconstruct an ancient cosmology that points to a very, very profound empirical astronomical event that is culminating uh, right now as we speak. And so I really try to make a distinction between reconstructing a profound uh, cosmology that speaks to our time, mm -hmm. and you find it primarily in the Mayan cosmology. Uh, the Mayan 2012 date is uh, comes to us through the tradition of the long count calendar. Mm -hmm. The long count calendar of the Maya is this uh, system that was put in place 
and apparently invented at this early Mayan site called Izapa uh, some 2100 years ago. And from the vantage point of reconstructing this ancient Mayan cosmology and trying to determine why the ancient Maya chose the year that we call 2012 to end this vast period of time in their long count calendar, uh, the answer is that in the years around 2012, there's a very, very rare astronomical alignment. Our sun on the solstice is lining up with the center of our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, this is called galactic alignment. Um, they anchored their entire cosmological orientation and their world age doctrine and their creation mythology is anchored to an idea that galactic alignments are the turnabout points in the great cycle of precession. They determine the end of the phase of increasing darkness and the beginning of the phase of increasing light. So the message of the, of the Maya about 2012 is that it's a phase shift. Uh, this is sort of, again, it's, it's reconstructing the Mayan belief around it. Now we in uh, the modern uh, scientific world, we feel like we need to have an empirical model that can actually explain how these galactic alignments would stimulate or catalyze or trigger uh, some kind of consciousness transformation on the planet. To me, that's an entirely separate enterprise mm -hmm. from reconstructing the ancient Maya, what I call the galactic cosmology of the Maya, and what, what I've shown in my books is how the Maya integrated this, this idea of the galactic alignment as a transformative nexus for humanity. They integrated it very nicely into their creation mythology, into the symbolism of their ball game, as well as in uh, the, the rituals of, of king-making ceremonies, for example. Mm -hmm. So this is a view of time that, that uh, would resonate more with, with the Eastern view, where instead of um, looking for uh, causal models for how things are happening, and, and there are potential, nobody has a, a satisfactory theory, but there are potential causal mm -hmm. modalities because these astronomical changes do have real physical effects. But the um, Chinese mind, for example, that created the I Ching, um, was much more interested in the acausal relationships, mm -hmm. the parallel relationships that are captured in the alchemical model, as above, so below. So the idea is that it was uh, not as confounding as it is to the Western mind that an astronomical event and what's happening down here would have this parallelism, mm -hmm. and this relates to Jung's idea of synchronicity, which right. he, he, uh, a term he coined in the 1940s after some dinner conversations with Einstein and working closely with another Nobel laureate physicist, Wolfgang Pauli. Mm -hmm. And at the time, synchronicity was still very speculative, but the findings of quantum mechanics um, show that there is this kind of um, parallelism between events in the world of the psyche and in the world of soma or of outside matter. And so just to, to give you some support from the from the Western view that's often been antagonistic mm -hmm. uh, toward astrology. I know I was um, brought up to, to think it was all just a bunch of superstitious nonsense and it couldn't possibly be true and it was something you could just rule out. Mm -hmm. But uh, the thing is that um, the reconstructed model of the ancient Maya cosmology, 
-hmm. which, by the way, has not survived into modern times. It had to be reconstructed through looking very carefully at the monuments that survive at the site of Izapa. Mm -hmm. uh, there are 60 carved monuments there. There's orientations to horizon astronomy. It was the fragmentary evidence primarily at that site, as well as looking at contextual parallels in these other traditions like the sacred ball game, that allowed me to piece together the fragmented ancient uh, uh, Mayan cosmology that explains why 2012 was so important to them. That reconstruction work, in a sense, doesn't really need support from an argument mm -hmm. that would show that it's efficacious whether you show that it's efficacious through an a-causal synchronistic principle or it's meaningful in terms of an actual causal model that scientists could elucidate. Uh, it stands alone as, a, as an achievement of some kind of the ancient Maya people. Now the direction that I actually go in to look for support is was this just an anomalous cosmology that these jungle savages happen to stumble upon or does it actually is it actually backed up by, say, uh, uh, other traditions from around the globe? Mm -hmm. That was the direction that I went in to look for support. Because if it is, what, what I tried to look for is um, uh, evidence of support, say, in the other world traditions that have a world age doctrine. Right. The world age doctrine, as you find it in the Hindu chronology or in Egypt, um, does seem to be rooted in procession, in the 26,000-year processional cycle. Okay. But are the, do the alignment, do, does the galactic alignment, which brackets the descending and ascending portals of the cycle, can you find evidence that uh, uh, these um, periods of time and the places in the sky that these periods of time point to for example, the galactic center as an important place in the sky. Can we find evidence that these were uh, considered important? Um, and the answer is yes. You know, that was the direction that my research led me, and I found that, for example, in the Vedic chronology, uh, you find evidence for this. And the point of that is that basically the Maya cosmology belongs to a perennial philosophy. It belongs to an ancient primordial tradition. And so what that brings up is that the modern consciousness or the modern paradigm, the Western philosophy, to the extent that it denies the uh, importance of galactic alignments in human history, is alone among all the great world traditions is alone in denying the importance of galactic alignments. So to me, that's where sort of the interesting argument comes from, that, um, you know, you know modern con there's something about modern consciousness that seems unable to grasp the importance of galactic alignments, probably by route of the fact that it has to uh, come up with some kind of tangible uh, analytical model by which galactic alignments can be understood to stimulate consciousness. And I think those models could be found, but it's at a very, very early stage of this sea change, uh, introducing this concept of galactic alignments into basically Western science and Western philosophy. 
And also, I think you've pointed out that, that equatorial peoples um, had an advantage in being able to actually see the dark rift in the Milky Way, that this is something that mm -hmm. stargazers without optical telescopes were, were, were capable of seeing. Sure. And so it, it's not um, uh, that they, they were unable to witness this event. And I think it, it certainly is valid that if you can find that a, this is the idea of Jungian psychology, if you can find an archetypal idea that's occurring across cultures mm -hmm. and that it's not a case of um, they're directly influencing each other, that then we have a case of where a real gnosis is possible because it's the prejudice of the Western mind to think that things can only be found out through the technological tools that, mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. use to find things out. But another way of finding things out, because since a, like a fractal, you know, a small part recapitulates the whole, there seems to be a holographic structure to reality. Somebody just contemplating the structure of their own body, mm -hmm. because our body is, is made up of the same subatomic particles that the whole universe is. It's a, a, an engine made by the universe that actually flies and works. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, an inner contemplative, by looking within, um, might discover through a kind of gnosis uh, many of the most um, penetrating patterns that underlie our reality. And if people um, from different traditions were able to come up with the same pattern, mm -hmm. then this is something we should pay attention to. And in general, um, one of the, the places where we know we're dealing with the blind spots of the Western mind is when human testimony is discounted as it mm. was with child abuse, as it was mm. with a whole lot of different ranges of phenomenon continuing into our present day. If we have many other ancient traditions uh, telling us, showing us a particular pattern, um, we'd be wise to pay attention. Exactly, and it is important to look at the inner Gnostic experience that can reveal true information about the nature of the universe at large. That's that uh, as above, so below principle. Uh, which I believe applies as much to the relationship between the subjective experiences of human beings as compared to its parallelism in the objective world as uh, it's, it's not just about uh, little things reflect the patterning, patterning of big things. It's really about the relationship between the subjective reality and objective reality. So that is important, but in, in the case of Arguing for the importance of the galactic center in ancient cosmologies, uh, that is something that a lot of the astronomers I've talked to criticize because they believe their bias is that only with the advent of radio telescopes in the 1920s was it a were we able to identify where the galactic center is. Okay, that's the main argument against uh, my theory that. Uh, for the Maya, 2012 is basically about a rare alignment to the galactic center. So then all the questions come up about, well, how did they know about the galactic center? Well, <laughs> let's just look at the star lore of ancient tribes in Central Africa. Let's look at the uh, how the Maori or the Australian Aborigines think about that part of the Milky Way that contains the galactic center. Let's look at the Inca material on the, uh, the attribution of the uh, dark cloud constellations that are near the galactic center. Let's look at the Mayan information on uh, the dark rift, for example, that you mentioned. Uh, the dark rift is one of the dark cloud 
uh, they call them constellations, but it's actually caused by interstellar dust that we see along the bright band of the Milky Way. A lot of it's concentrated in that area of the Milky Way that is called the nuclear bulge. This is the wider part of the Milky Way, which can be noticed with the naked eye observation alone, and there are many more bright stars there. There's also uh, the dark rift feature right running through that area with the Maya called the uh, Shabalba Bay or the road to the underworld. It's the cleft in the sky, the door in the sky. It's related to a whole complex of, of, of mythic prototypes or mythic symbols that relate to a cosmic portal and its primary manifestation is in understanding how it relates to the Milky Way as the great goddess or the great mother and then the dark rift would be uh, the, her birth canal. Mm -hmm. So it's, an, if it's evidence that the Maya perceived the galactic center region as a source, a birthplace, and a center. Um, and again, we see this reflected in the Inca material, in the Maori tribes, and the Australian Aborigines. So the evidence that comes from the star lore of these tribes, some of which is hundreds and hundreds of years old, seems to argue that human beings with naked eye observation alone could understand the galactic center as a source and center. And certainly that does reflect its true nature. And one of the, the interesting things that Western science has contributed to this is uh, that there is a black hole Mm -hmm. apparently at the center of our galaxy as there is of many galaxies and um, given that that several different cultures called that center a womb or the source um, that seems like an interesting correspondence to the idea that there's this black hole mm -hmm. um, which would, would seem to be have, have many relationships to, to this whole theme of the place where a densification trend would kind of bottom out because after all in a black hole um, matter is irrealized and um, although it's the densest of, of, of substances mm -hmm. all other forms are apparently erased um, though apparently just mm -hmm. in the last few days I've heard that Stephen Hawking now says that information could somehow survive crossing that event horizon mm -hmm. but it seems like there may be many points of connection with the, the black hole at the center of the galaxy and the kind of archetypal Sure. Um, connection of meaning that they had with the center. And what's fascinating about that, another thing that I explored in an appendix to my book, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, uh, the appendix is titled The Black Hole in Maya Creation Texts. Mayan epigraphers, hieroglyphic experts, they've deciphered a great deal of information around these uh, uh, creation texts. They are hieroglyphic texts that are found carved in stone, uh, and they are describing events relating to the creation of the world and the subsequent recreations of the world. Remember, in the Maya creation mythology, there's a series of world ages. In fact, there's a series of five world ages. Each one lasts about 5,125 years. That is a significant period of 13 Bakhtuns within the Mayan long count calendar. And the 2012 date is the ending of one of these 13 Bakhtun periods. Well, in the World Age creation mythology, um, 
there are a total of five. So five of these total one complete 26,000-year processional period. Now the texts, the black hole in Maya creation text that we find, basically they decipher the hieroglyphs and there's one significant hieroglyph that translates into English as black hole. And uh, it might have reference to the dark rift in the Milky Way, which I previously mentioned was mythologized as a, uh, a cosmic birth canal or portal in the sky. Um, but it actually might have reference to uh, a deeper mystery uh, around uh, the actual singularity of the black hole. And in these texts, creation happens at the black hole. So uh, that's an interesting facet of all this. Now to the extent that creation also happens in 2012, in the, uh, to the extent that the world, uh, a new world age dawns, you know, there's a new world age beginning. There's a recreation of the world or a renewal of the world. Um, to the extent that that happens in 2012, it seems to be very, very closely and intimately tied in with the time when our sun on the solstice lines up with the center of the galaxy. And I think I should maybe illustrate that with a couple of slides so that viewers can really get an understanding of what that means. Izapa is a small ritual site in southern Mexico. It is on the border with Guatemala. Its, its heyday was experienced in the first century, BD, uh, first century BC and uh, the first long count monuments carved in stone are found uh, in the context of Izapa's heyday in the first century BC. The first uh, long count monument is uh, dated to 37 BC. Now at Izapa there are 60 carved monuments, many of which depict episodes from Maya creation mythology. And it's also depicting astronomy. Here in this monument from Izapa, it's Stila 25, we actually have illustrated an episode from the Maya creation mythology. In the lower right we have one of the hero twins, one Hunapu. His arm is torn off and it's being held by the bird in the tree above. The bird in the tree above is uh, Seven Macaw, a significant player in the Maya creation mythology. Seven Macaw is the Big Dipper constellation and the Big Dipper constellation circles the pole star. So it's the constellation of the north and it refers to the polar center. Now this alligator on the left is the Milky Way and it circles around the sky and its head is at the bottom. The head of the uh, alligator is uh, referential to the galactic center. Uh, the Milky Way was mythologized in a couple of different ways. It could have been seen as the Great Mother, it could have been seen as the road in the sky or the river. Uh, it was also seen as a snake or an alligator. And scholars recognize that the alligator at Azapa is the Milky Way and its head is equivalent to the nuclear bulge where the galactic center is located. 
So what we have depicted in this one monument from Izapa, dated to about the first century BC, is this dialectical cosmology of the relationship between the polar center and the galact center. Now the galactic center is significant because here we have the Milky Way arching overhead and we can see the nuclear bulge of the, uh, of the Milky Way. Our Milky Way is saucer shaped so we're, there is this bright and wide area of the Milky Way that is between the constellations Sagittarius and Scorpio. What we have depicted here is, is the Sun on the solstice is lining up with the galactic center. And this is something that's been converging over a period of thousands and thousands of years. The ancient Maya at Izapa some 2,000 years ago noticed that there was a convergence going on in the sky. It was a convergence between the December solstice sun, which they mythologized as their first father deity, and the galactic center, which was representative of their cosmic mother deity. So what we have going on in 2012 is this rare astronomical alignment which can be thought about mythologically as the union of cosmic mother and cosmic father. So this connects with a whole uh, complex of, of cosmological uh, understandings that we find like say in Hinduism where it's the union of Shiva and Shakti you know, the union of cosmic mother and cosmic father. And this also relates to the, the um, historical cycles that you were referring to and that Rihanna Eisler referred to in The Chalice and the Blade, that we've basically descended into a, a approximately 6,000 year period that we identify as history, mm -hmm. where uh, the feminine is increasingly repressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a wonderful book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein, and he mm -hmm. basically points out that um, in every case when a, when a culture adopted a written alphabet, suddenly there could no longer, the goddess disappeared, women mm -hmm. could no longer participate in religious rites, mm -hmm. uh, the feminine in every way became re repressed. Um, he related it, his theory was that it related to the adoption of written alphabets, which mm -hmm. changed the hemispheric dominance to the more masculine um, left hemisphere mm -hmm. that's more hierarchical, more dominator-oriented, more interested in linearity, and mm -hmm. therefore it would be more antagonistic to the, this kind of circular model of time. Mm -hmm. And out of that mind frame, we would, you know, um, have some kind of text that would, you know, dominate everything, whether it was um, a religious text or the Communist Manifesto, and the beginning would be the word, and even the clerics would tend to adopt the colors of pen and ink. Mm -hmm. But now, as we are lining up with this galactic center, we're also seeing in culture uh, some empirical evidence that the archetypal relationship between masculine and feminine seems to be in a state of very dynamic shifting mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And we see many cultural evidences of that, uh, the fact that we are now moving from a print-based technology uh, toward um, a more visual-based um, uh, technology with computers yeah. and video screens and, and so forth and we're seeing um, tremendous changes in in 
our in kids that are that mm. our education system isn't catching up with as they're becoming more visually based and now we're creating ac acronyms like ADD and ADHD right. when mm. it may be an artifact of our um, trying to teach them with printed workbooks when when they've already moved on to a more visual modality and right. one of the things that Leonard Schlein points out is that the whole modern growth of the rights of women has corresponded with the growth of television. Mm, mm -hmm. and, and despite how unfortunate much of the content of video games and television, how anti-feminine the content might be, as a Marshall McLuhan's famous maxim, the medium is the message. So we're seeing the shift in hemispheres, the shift from um, uh, a print-based uh, way of seeing things that has a more masculine and linear um, uh, mm -hmm. view of things to a, a more visual um, mm -hmm. w a way and this has been a theme throughout the 20th century where we've gone from representational art to Salvador Dali to uh, I just saw a movie where there were so many mm -hmm. surreal dissolves just in the credits um, that you know a person from an earlier era would have no way of following it I in fact when they first came out with silent films and they had the first zoom lens and they zoomed in on someone, people in the audience gasped because they <laughs> thought the person's face was getting larger. Mm -hmm. And now there's a kind of visual sophistication that we just uh, take for granted, but that represents a profound shift in consciousness. And this may explain something that I've noticed even just riding the, the subways in New York uh, when I go back and, and visit, having grown up there, that people seem a lot kinder. And this happened before September 11th, and the, the same kind of inner city kids that I taught in the 80s now seem a lot more androgynous and softer and, and, and politer. And um, uh, violence rates among adolescents in our culture have dropped 78%. We often don't hear about this because the reportage of violent crime has, mm. has gone up 600%. Mm. So we may be seeing a, a, a move toward the feminine in culture um, and some of the milestones are, are things like the popular novel The Da Vinci Code where, where information that, that um, is now entering the popular culture about how mm -hmm. Christianity may have excised Mag Mary Magdalene's role in Christianity and so forth. So we're seeing some cultural markers of uh, the feminine and the masculine reversing roles. When In, a, in the 60s when there was a, a great um, spike of novelty of some sort, we, we saw that androgyny seemed to, to um, come into being and a change in gender roles mm -hmm. and, and um, fashions and gender identifications seemed to blur and those kind of boundaries seemed to dissolve and that may be part of this theme happening in culture that um, uh, corresponds with this astronomical alignment. Yes, uh, but I think the real way to understand it is not one of the, of the pendulum swinging uh, the ever-swinging pendulum between polar opposites, like between masculine and feminine. I think the way to understand it is, uh, in the words of social historian Rianne Eisler, she degenderized the entire discussion by saying, it's not matriarchy versus patriarchy. Mm -hmm. It's really um, a partnership mode of being uh, compared with a dominator mode of being. Now the partnership mode does seem to be more closely associated with the earlier uh, mother goddess worshiping substrate. And that type of consciousness seems to have an ability to accept its relationship to the matrix environment in which it's embedded. Now we might see that manifesting in a positive way in the sense that the guy 
or the person on the subway is just nicer to people. He's more accepting of how he, as an individual autonomous being, is embedded in and related to the larger matrix of reality of his environment. So the polarity is not between masculine and feminine. It's more between the um, individualized style of culture, which we might say is the dominator style. It celebrates individualism and so on. The relationship between that and the more mother goddess worshiping style, which is the, the matrix. It's the background matrix. Okay. So it's really the relationship between the unmanifest divine, eternal, universal backdrop of being, the essence, and the uh, mortal, incarnate, manifest being as it exists in the field of time. So, for example, Fritjof Capra, in his recent book, The Web of Life, where he talks about nature and systems theory and so forth, talked about two great tendencies in nature, the self-assertive versus the integrative. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Western culture, of course, is characterized by, you know, preponderance of the self-assertive is the thing that we tend to, to celebrate. Sure. Would those two variables correspond to...? Um, to some extent, on a psychological level, but I think the key thing to understand is that uh, the finite and the infinite backdrop are not polar opposites because the finite is embedded within the infinite as one of infinity's possibilities. Infinity can make itself finite. That is one of its possibilities. So it's like finitude and uh, individual incarnated manifested um, souls or beings uh, come out of infinity, but in so doing they don't necessarily have to be alienated from their rootedness in that divine matrix. I think it's a question of be, becoming transparent to the eternal shared backdrop of which we all come ultimately as expressions of consciousness. And uh, in doing so we can um, sort of open up a conduit into the cosmic center and source, you might say, and see in each other reflections of our own true selves. I think this is the basis of the beginning of a, uh, a new style of culture that would be more partnership-oriented, but um, it's interesting how it all does tie back into um, the galactic alignment because the galactic alignment, remember, is about this connection between our local sun and the, uh, the great cosmic center of the galactic center, which could be seen as the more um, pervasive backdrop. So it's, it's a direct progression from the Copernican view that would be seen as the most egocentric to um, a, a more integrated view where we're, we're seeing our relationship to the galaxy and, and to uh, exactly. It would be a step that the Izapan cosmologists took, going from a polar-oriented cosmology, one that, you know, in that uh, image of the carving that I showed, uh, the polar cosmology was a more limited framework, going directly to this galactic understanding. And But what I'd sort of like to bring it back to as well is the importance of an acausal uh, 
domain to this entire discussion, which I think you can, you can continue to elucidate even more. It has to do with the uh, misunderstanding that uh, what I've shown in terms of reconstructing ancient Mayan cosmology uh, demonstrates that the 2012 date is anchored to this astronomical alignment. Okay, so then the next thought is that this alignment causes human transformation. I don't think that has to be what it's about. I, I think that um, all true change comes from the spiritual domain. What the alignment, the empirically observable alignment in the sky can be is an outer symbol, an expression in the physical domain of something that's basically going on at the same time in tandem on a spiritual level. So there's this spiritual revolution that's taking place. There's, you might say, a spiritual realignment to our inner cosmic source and center. Uh, its outward symbol can be the galactic center, but what it's really about is we're, we're uh, coming back into alignment with our eternal, universal, unmanifest backdrop. Now, the, the thing about that is that uh, we can resist that, and that can give rise to all kinds of problems, or we can allow it to be, and in so doing, we can embrace our deep interconnectedness, uh, recognizing that all human beings do indeed spring from the same source. So this would relate, for example, to the homo gestalt archetype, uh, where we see uh, egocentrism having kind of bottomed out that, that now there starts mm. to be a much uh, interfacing between individual consciousness without, with the novelty conserving um, mm -hmm. reality that the individual consciousness mm -hmm. is retained, but, but it now it, it, it becomes far more aware of all the other psyches and consciousnesses that are out there. And like you said earlier, um, cultures as a whole go through their own life process too. So in the same way that each manifest ego will die, um, the culture, life wave of culture as well, um, does not last forever. You know, so it, it ultimately comes to how does uh, a culture relate to its eternal source. And I think that uh, sort of a, a, one of the free will things about this is that uh, we can be torn apart and dissolved back into the background matrix in a way that's not really going to preserve consciousness. Or we can take the next evolutionary step and allow our mortal manifest egos to become transparent so that we can, even in retaining our individual finite selves, perceive, it would be a, a higher consciousness perception, but we would perceive our eternal background at the same time. So again, it's about the relationship between the finite and the infinite. And what's interesting about the, the Mayan calendar and their the prophetic aspect of it is that it seems to leave a lot of room for indeterminacy because mm -hmm. although they ended at this particular date they supply no content about what's supposed to happen and that seems to create more room for indeterminacy mm -hmm. and it seems that as we 
line up with that evolutionary spiral and more dimensions become available to us, then there is more room uh, for free will uh, to blossom. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of an, as an analogy, if you're driving on the highway, you have a very limited amount of free will. You can like go forwards or backwards, or you can change lanes and that type of thing. But, but the gravity and then the mechanical rules of the car uh, limit your um, free will. And if the car stools and your free will becomes even more limited, if you were then to go into a helicopter, you would now have uh, somewhat greater range. You'd still be bound by gravity, but you could travel into more dimensions and uh, uh, mm -hmm. space and, and that type of thing. And it seems that um, even uh, with the densification that was represented by technology, that um, we have now created more room for free will. So we see a way in which technology seems to be um, paralleling this trend. Uh, the inventor of the helicopter, Arthur Bell, came to a, a similar conclusion about free will as, as uh, I've come to, that, that it's, it's there, but it's more fragile and, and temporally mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> vulnerable phenomenon than, than, than we might think. But our technology itself seems to be allowing for more and more free will, the limited choices that you might have with a locomotive riding on its linear track now we have the computer where by accessing mm -hmm. the internet, anything that happens to be uh, ascendant in my psyche, I can, through Google or something, I can mm -hmm. have the computer then parallel that um, mm -hmm. and in a, in a very nonlinear way, um, explore all, all kinds of different things. And as we've seen um, magic and the more spiritual practices, and, and this is something that Tolkien wrote a lot about, um, D descend into the use of external means and in some of his letters to his son Christopher as an RAF pilot you know he talked about how unfortunate it was that we were using Mordor gadgets to defeat Mordor hmm. Um, hmm. and that basically he thought that um, all the reliance on technology and external means w w was part of this darkening trend hmm. and he also hmm. saw the procession of, of, of the ages um, hmm. as well but um, in the, in, the, in the 1990s, it's been pointed out that while the uh, uh, value of the industrial production of uh, the United States increased, uh, tripled more or less, mm. that its physical weight decreased by 40% or so mm. as less pig iron was created and more yeah. pixels and more intellectual property in the form of zeros and ones. So it seems that even technology, which in the past, as you've pointed out, um, limited us or replaced psychic functions and in some ways made us weaker uh, now seems to be kind of etherealizing itself mm -hmm. and making us more integrative as things like the internet an artifact that was originally created by um, a Western mind that wanted a way for um, technocrats to be able to communicate after a nuclear war has now unexpectedly become this tremendous engine of novelty Mm. And it seems that um, technology itself seems to be recapitulating some of these trends. Well, fascinating. Uh, Jonathan, I want to thank you for joining me on this uh, amazing discussion. This is uh, the first in an ongoing series of discussions that is called uh, Dialogues on Prophecy and the End of Time. So thank you for joining us.